Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 80 of the show. Uh, certainly another good one for you. Lots of important stuff to get into. Uh, we crowned a major champion on the PGA Tour this past weekend. Uh, the NBA Finals have wrapped up, and we have a winner, an NBA champion that we'll uh, discuss. The NHL Stanley Cup Final is... Uh, about halfway over so we'll recap how the first several games in that series has gone and then of course we'll bring you up to speed uh, in major league baseball with the standings update there and then the around the island segment as always is uh, loaded with news and information uh, specifically in the nhl and uh, nba uh, lots of stuff to get into uh, some interesting news also from the golf world too that we'll uh, cover in around the island but we are going to start off like we normally do in the PGA Tour this past weekend's tournament was the U.S. Open it was at the Country Club at Brookline which was in Chestnut Hill Massachusetts just outside of Boston it was a par 70 distance was 7,264 yards all right fairly lengthy course this was the third major championship of the year uh, behind the Masters and the PGA Championship that have already been played. This was the fourth U.S. Open to be played here at Brookline, the first since 1988. So obviously the course looks a lot different, uh, looked a lot different this past week than it did back in 1988. Uh, one of the best fields, obviously, of the year uh, because it's a major championship. So we saw a lot of, you know, all the top-ranked players in the world were out there. Uh, Tiger Woods did not play in this one. He had played in the Masters, uh, played in the PGA Championship, did not make it out for this one. Uh, his leg obviously kind of gave out on him there at the PGA Championship, forcing him to withdraw. So we did not have a Tiger Woods sighting here at Brookline this past week, but uh, there were some se- several different storylines that we were looking at. Uh, you know, Scotty Scheffler was looking to win uh, – the, the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same year. Uh, Justin Thomas was looking for back-to-back majors. John Rahm was looking to win back-to-back U.S. Opens for just the third time in the last 50 years. Uh, and then Rory McIlroy, believe it or not, has not won a major championship since 2014. So we were looking to see how he would do. Uh, some interesting things that did happen in the first couple rounds. Uh, the opening round on Thursday, John Rahm, uh, hit an errant tee shot on 18, hit it, I believe it was left, towards the fan concourse, uh, and when he walked up to the ball, his ball was actually gone. So uh, somebody had stolen his ball. Um, kind of a weird, bizarre scene to uh, to play out there. He still ended up parring the hole. Now, after the first round on Thursday, five of the six players that were leading the field uh, had earned their spots into the U.S. Open via the U.S. Open's final qualifying. Uh, Rory McIlroy was the only uh, only guy uh, 
uh, in that six group, uh, a group of six players leading the tournament after round one that uh, did not earn his spot via the final U.S. qualifying. So a lot of no-name guys at the top of the leaderboard after round one, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, round two, we saw a hole-in-one. Uh, Cameron Young, he aced the par-3 sixth, uh, which was the 48th hole-in-one in U.S. Open history. Uh, he did go on to miss the cut, though, but at least uh, he got himself an ace. Now, the the rest of the weekend, the course itself was just absolutely brutal. I mean, it was in great condition itself, but I'm saying uh, it played absolutely brutal. Uh, it made the best players in the world look human. Most weeks, they look uh, like a machine with how well they golf, uh, but this week uh, made them look like they were uh, human, kind of humbled them a little bit. Uh, the weather was much cooler uh, you know, than, than we would see in a summer tournament. Uh, players had their long sleeves and, and uh, you know, pullovers on on Saturday and Sunday. A little breezy, too. So the wind certainly played a, a, a factor into how tough this course was playing. Uh, but in the end, Matthew Fitzpatrick was your winner at six under par. All right. It was his very first career victory on the PGA Tour. So obviously his first major championship he does have seven wins on the european tour but this was his first on the pga tour and with his victory matthew fitzpatrick joined jack nicholas as the only golfers to win both the u.s amateur uh, open and the u.s open on the same course all right fitzpatrick had won the u.s amateur open uh, on this course here at brookline back in 2013 when he was just a baby so uh, matthew fitzpatrick uh, is still currently undefeated at Brookline, which is a very, very difficult course to be undefeated at. Um, his six under par was was very impressive. A couple other guys throughout the tournament had gotten to six under par, um, but uh, it seemed as though if you got to six under par, you immediately double bogeyed or something bad happened to you. But uh, Fitzpatrick played great uh, all weekend. He shot uh 368s and a 70, all right? So um, his 68 on Sunday, he had an incredible sand save on the 18th hole, par four, hit it out of the bunker and put uh, in his first shot, he hit it into the bunker. Second shot, he hit it from the bunker onto the green, saved par. Uh, Will Zalatoris uh, ended up missing uh, about a 15 to 17 foot putt to, to tie Fitzpatrick at six under, uh, giving Fitzpatrick the win. So I mentioned uh, Will Zalatoris. He and Scotty Scheffler tied for second at five under par. Uh, Scheffler was in command of this thing for a little while there on Saturday uh, and then ran into some bogey trouble on the back nine. Uh, Ended up shooting a one over 71 on Saturday. Uh, Followed that up on Sunday, though, with a great round of 67, three under par. So Scheffler looked good on Sunday, got himself back up into that... uh, that conversation, but, um, so Scheffler and Zalatoris tied at five under par, uh, fourth place solo fourth was Hideki Matsuyama. And he came out of absolutely nowhere. Uh, he was a non-factor. He was at even par through the first two rounds heading into Saturday, shot a two over 72 on Saturday, and then came out on Sunday. Matsuyama did with a five-under round of 65, which was the lowest round of the entire tournament all weekend, uh, and that 
catapulted him up to that solo fourth at three under par. Uh, Two-way tie for fifth. Colin Morikawa and Rory McIlroy both were at two under par. Now, what a weekend for Morikawa. Um, He opened with a 69, followed that up on Friday with a 66. He was your 36-hole leader, Colin Morikawa was, at five under par, and then proceeded to shoot a seven-over 77 uh, on Saturday. Just an absolutely horrid round of golf by Morikawa, but he did follow that up with a a four under 66. So that was uh, on Sunday. So that was an 11 shot difference for Morikawa between Saturday's round and uh, Sunday's round. So if you you figure he just cleans that up a little bit and uh, he's probably your winner in this thing. And then Rory, man, he was all over the place. He was, his score was like a ping pong ball. He, uh, he kept going, uh, you know, two under three under, then down to one under, then up to two, three under four under, uh, and then back down to two under, and he just couldn't get it straight. He he shot a 67-69, that three-over round of uh, 73 on Saturday really kind of uh, eliminated his hopes to really kind of winning this thing, uh, but he was still up there, all right? So um, the only other golfers under par, there were a total of nine golfers under par, those that I've mentioned, plus Denny McCarthy Adam Hadwin and Keegan Bradley. They all finished at one under par, which was T7. So uh, those were your only nine golfers that were under par for this entire thing. And only two guys were at even par, or finished at even par. It was Gary Woodland and Joel Damon. All right, so very tough tournament. It was fun to watch, very competitive. The, uh, very competitive. The leaderboard, with the exception of the end of round one, so between rounds two and four, the leaderboard was absolutely stacked with, top flight players, top ranked players, and uh, it was just very, very impressive to watch, fun to watch, super competitive, and watching Zalatoris uh, put that ball on 18 with a chance to tie Fitzpatrick and force a playoff was just uh, edgier seat kind of stuff, but all in all, it was a very good tournament for the PGA Tour, very impressive U.S. Open, and uh, congrats to Matthew Fitzpatrick on his uh, first career major championship. But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the Travelers Tra- uh, Travelers Championship. That is held at TPC River Highlands, which is in Cromwell, Connecticut, so just down the road from Brookline. Uh, this, too, is also a par 70, uh, but the distance on this course is 6,852 yards. All right, This is one of the PGA Tour's shortest courses, uh, but we still see some very low scores here at TPC River Highlands, all right, uh, unlike most of the other par 70 courses, all right. This course is still challenging, like I said. Very tough stretch of holes, uh, holes 15 through 17. They're built around a four-acre lake, all right, so you got lots of water, got some sand in play, and a very difficult stretch there to finish up your round here at TPC River Highlands. Uh, This is the 70th anniversary of the Travelers Championship, and this is the 39th year in a row that it has been held at TPC River Highlands. This course is home to the lowest ever recorded round on the PGA Tour with a round of 58 that was shot by Jim Furyk back in uh, the final round of the 2016 Travelers Championship. The field itself for this thing, uh, it's a week after a major 
So normally it wouldn't be good, but this week it is very, very good. Six of the top 10 golfers in the world are going to be out there, including the top four in the FedEx Cup standings. Uh, some, some of the bigger names you'll see out there this weekend at the Travelers, Scotty Scheffler, Justin Thomas, Patrick Cantlay, Rory McIlroy, and Sam Burns. All right, last year's rendition uh, of this tournament was, was an absolute marathon. Uh, we ended in an eight-hole playoff uh, in which Harris English was your winner. Uh, that was actually the 25th playoff in Travelers Championship history, uh, that one being the longest playoff in Travelers Championship history, second longest playoff of any PGA Tour event. Uh, interesting fact about the Travelers Championship, every champion here at the Travelers since 2016 has played in the U.S. Open the week prior. So that bodes well for a lot of the top guys that played last week. Uh, and this is also the first year since the pandemic began uh, that the Travelers is going to have full fan attendance. All right, so you got lots of lots of fans will be out there. Uh, it's definitely a scene, uh, pretty neat course, uh, lots of water, very challenging. And uh, I'm definitely going to be tuned into this thing as much as I can be uh, this weekend. But uh, it's going to be some good golf. You got a, a, a tough course, uh, a great field of golfers, and uh, that makes for some awesome golf entertainment. So uh, I will certainly be tuned in to the Travelers Championship this weekend. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and do a Stanley Cup final update here in the NHL. Uh, we are four games into the Stanley Cup final. And uh, last week, we had a pretty extended preview of the Stanley Cup final between the Colorado Avalanche and the Tampa Bay Lightning. I had originally picked the Tampa Bay Lightning to win the series in seven games. And through four games, uh, the only way that Tampa Bay will win the Stanley Cup is if they do it in seven games. It has not been kind to the Lightning thus far. In our preview episode last week, we did go over uh, quite a few interesting facts about the Stanley Cup Finals, but I do have a couple more to add. Um, the Avalanche uh, are looking to become the fifth preseason favorite in the last 30 years to win the Stanley Cup. All right, uh, The Avs opened the year as the preseason favorites in Vegas, and uh, they can join the 2020 Tampa Bay Lightning, 2015 Chicago Blackhawks, the 2002 and 1997 Detroit Red Wings as the only other preseason betting favorites to actually win the Stanley Cup. Uh, and that is looking very good so far through four games. Uh, this Stanley Cup final is also only the second Stanley Cup final to feature a Norris Trophy finalist on both sides. All right, Of course, with Colorado, you have Kale McCarr. Uh, Tampa Bay, you have Victor Hedman. Uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert for Around the Island. Uh, one of those two did, in fact, win the Norris Trophy. We'll go over that here in a little bit. But the only other time this happened where there was a Norris Trophy finalist for uh, both teams uh, in the Stanley Cup final was 2001, and that was between Colorado and New Jersey. Uh, Colorado's Raymond Bork uh, and New Jersey's Scott Stevens. Um, Colorado actually won the Stanley Cup that year, so there might be an omen to this. But... Uh, last week's episode was just simply the preview, so we'll get you caught up on how the first four games uh, took place. Uh, game one was in Denver at Ball Arena. The Avalanche came out like gangbusters. Uh, they had nine days off from when their Western Conference final ended to when game one started. Uh, 
there was no rust, absolutely zero rust by the Avalanche. About eight minutes into the game, uh, they scored two goals that were a minute and 45 seconds apart. Quick 2-0 lead. Tampa Bay's Nick Paul answered that one just a few minutes later. What a trade di- uh, deadline acquisition for Tampa Bay, For you know, Nick Paul has been. Uh, just a uh, good series against Edmonton, showing up here in Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Finals, a big power forward. Um, so after Nick Paul scored, Colorado again scored late in the first on a five-on-three power play to go up 3-1. to one. All right, so it was a 3-1 to one, uh, first period score. Uh, heading into the second. In that second period, Tampa Bay got two quick goals of their own, about 48 seconds apart. One from Andre Palat, which was just an absolutely beautiful goal. Uh, sweet pass from uh, Nikita Kucherov over to Palat. And then Mikhail Sergachev uh, tied the game at three, 48 seconds later. We had no scoring in the third period, so we went into overtime. All right, this was only the 14th overtime game this postseason in the NHL, which is a lot lower than normal. And that didn't last long because a minute and 23 seconds into overtime, Colorado's Andre Burakovsky buried a beautiful pass from Valerie Nachushkin to give the Avalanche the game one 4-3 victory and a 1-0 series lead. Now, for the Avalanche, this was their sixth straight win in the playoffs, and it brought their playoff record to 13-2 at the time, and only four other teams in NHL history had started the postseason 13-2. The other four went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. Uh, Colorado also added four more goals in Game 1 to give their Game 1 total in the playoffs uh, 22 goals in Game 1s All right, through their four series, which is the second most all-time in NHL history. Only the 1981 New York Islanders had more Game 1 goals, which was 28. And, uh, oh, yeah, they went on to win the Cup that year. So everything's pointing at Colorado winning the cup. Meanwhile, that game one loss dropped Tampa Bay's record to one and three in game ones this postseason, and they had all uh, been on the road. So that brings us to game two. Uh, that was also in Denver, and there is not much to discuss about this one. Colorado scored three more goals in the first period, and uh, they never looked back. Added two more in the second, two more in the third. That adds up to seven. Uh, oh yeah, and Tampa Bay didn't score any. So it was a seven to nothing dominating win for the Avalanche to put them up 2-0 in the series. Uh, and frankly, this game could have been 10 to nothing. Uh, Tampa Bay's goalie, Andre Vasilevsky, made several absolutely amazing saves, a couple of breakaway saves. Uh, it, just, it could have easily been 10 nothing. Um, score wouldn't indicate that, but uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely atrocious. Um, that three-goal first period in Game 2 for the Avalanche was their 10th period this postseason, scoring three or more goals, which tied the Edmonton Oilers for the most uh, this postseason. Uh, Colorado defenseman Kale McCarr, just mentioned him a minute ago, he scored a uh, both of the Avalanche's third-period goals. It was a, One was a power play goal, one was a shorthanded goal, both in the third period. They were about seven and a half minutes apart. And in doing so, Kale McCarr became the first defenseman since 1996 to score both a power play goal and a shorthanded goal in the same game. Pretty impressive stuff for a defenseman. Then on the Tampa Bay side of things, uh, Andre Vasilevsky, this was the worst game of his career, uh, literally. Uh, the most goals he's ever allowed in a single game, regular or postseason, came in this one. 
seven to nothing victory by the Avs was the second largest shutout victory in Stanley Cup Finals history, uh, and that victory also made the Avalanche the first team to score eleven goals in the first two games of a Stanley Cup Finals since 1996, when the Colorado Avalanche did it. And, oh yeah, they went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. So, uh, all kinds of omens pointing to Colorado winning. So, Game 3, we shifted back to Tampa Bay at Amelie Arena. It was obviously a must-win for Tampa Bay. Colorado actually scored pretty early into the first period in this one, uh, but the goal was challenged for offsides and actually ended up getting called back. All right, so shortly after that, Colorado said, go ahead and challenge this one. Gabriel Landeskog buried home a rebound, put the avalanche up 1-0. Then a few minutes later, Tampa Bay got two goals, quick ones again, about two minutes apart. They took a 2-1 lead into the second period. Uh, Nick Paul for Tampa, mentioned him a minute ago, he scored a uh, minute and a half into the second period to give the Lightning a 3-1 to lead. Landis Cog scored his second uh, of the game just a few minutes after that to bring it to 3-2. to But then Steven Stamkos and the Lightning took over. Uh, they got four more unanswered goals to go up 6-2 to uh, heading into the third. There were no goals in the third period, surprisingly. So the final score was Tampa Bay 6, Colorado 2. That brought the series to within 2-1. to Great offensive output for Tampa. A gem of a performance by Vasilevsky uh, after that just completely abysmal performance uh, the game before. Uh, Vasilevsky had made 37 saves on 39 shots. All right, so pretty impressive stuff there. Tampa Bay became the third team in Stanley Cup Final history to win their next game after losing by seven-plus goals the game before. All right, so interesting fact there. Uh, Tampa Bay's Nikita Kucherov, he got hurt in the third period of this one and uh, took one shift after. He took a nasty cross-check by Devin Taves of Colorado. Taves got a penalty for it. Uh, Kucherov went down awkwardly. Looked like he kind of jacked his knee up. Uh, He went one shift on the ensuing power play, started the power play, and uh, tried a one-timer and uh, missed the net. And you could see him in pretty pretty uh, noticeable discomfort left the ice did not return and um you know that's obviously a big blow to tampa bay he did have two assists though in game three kucherov did uh, which made him the first player since wayne gretzky to have three straight playoffs uh accruing 25 or more points all right so uh pretty impressive stuff there by kucherov game four all right this was also in Tampa Bay, uh, Nikita Kucherov did in fact play. All right, so his knee his knee was okay. On the Colorado side of things, uh, Nazem Kadri returned to the lineup after getting hurt, and I think it was Game Two or Three of the Edmonton series in the Western Conference Final. So Kadri had not played in uh, over two weeks, and uh, he returned to the lineup, and boy, was his presence felt. Uh, the game started off, uh, home crowd buzzing. Tampa Bay scored 36 seconds into the game. Anthony Sorelli, a really nice goal. Um, that lead held up um, about a th- quarter of the way into the second period when Nathan McKinnon scored on the power play to tie it. About five minutes after that, Victor Hedman scored for the Lightning to give them a 2-1 to lead. And then... Um, 
about two, almost three minutes into the third period, uh, Avalanche scored, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Cogliano scored on a deflection to tie it at two, and that lead took us into overtime. This was the 15th overtime game this postseason and the second of this series in these four games. Uh, you, you knew it was going to be tough uh, for both teams. Tampa Bay had the pressure of needing to win, uh, but Nazem Kadri, first game back into the lineup, about 12 minutes into overtime, buried a wrist shot past Vasilevsky to give the Avalanche a 3-2 victory in game four and a 3-1 commanding series lead. All right, so as it sits now, uh, Colorado is up three games to one. Every every omen I just mentioned, every stat at the beginning of this segment pointed to Colorado winning, and uh, they're up 3-1 going back home to Denver. Uh, this thing is over, all right? Uh, next week's episode, we're going to be talking about a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, that will be Colorado. There's absolutely zero way that Tampa Bay wins three straight games. Uh, so my pick is going to flop on that. But um, if Tampa somehow does it, um, we'll see. I mean, they're, they're the two-time defending Stanley Cup champs for a reason. I don't think Denver uh, is a place they want to play, but they're going to have to get it done in Game 5. I just don't see the Avalanche losing at home with a chance to win the Stanley Cup. Not the way they've been playing this series. Uh, not a chance. So uh, Tampa, Tampa's in some trouble because Colorado is just an absolute buzzsaw uh, just a complete wagon, and I would not want to play them in Game 5. But next week's episode, we will certainly uh, probably be talking about a Stanley Cup champion by that point. So uh, be sure and get caught up on that next week. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association and do an NBA Finals recap as we have concluded the NBA Finals, which wrapped up the NBA's season And uh, last week, we had got you caught up to speed on the first five games of the NBA Finals. Golden State had a three-games-to-two lead uh, after last week's episode. And if you recall, I had uh, originally predicted that Golden State would win the NBA Finals in seven games. So they had a chance to do that in Game 6. But before we got to Game 6, Golden State's victory in Game 5 gave the trio of Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green their 20th NBA Finals victory together, which is the most Finals wins by a trio in the last 50 NBA seasons. Uh, San Antonio Spurs, uh, Duncan, Ginobili, and Parker had 19 Finals victories together, and Boston's trio, I believe it was in the 70s perhaps, of Bird, McHale, and Parrish, they had 16 NBA Finals victories together. So, Game 5's victory put Curry, Thompson, and Green at 20 to take the lead there most uh, in the last 50 years. So we move into Game 6. This game was in Boston at TD Garden. Obviously, Boston had to win to keep their season alive. If Golden State won, that meant an NBA Finals victory. So uh, the game itself was just absolutely bonkers. Uh, Boston came out ready to play. Uh, They really did. They started great. They got a 14-2 lead uh, early in the first quarter. Uh, but then Golden State ended the first quarter on a 25-8 run. And they never looked back after that. Uh, between the 227 mark of the first quarter and about halfway into, I say halfway, maybe a third of the way into the second quarter, Golden State went on a 21 to nothing run, which was the longest scoring run 
in the last 50 NBA Finals. Right? So we've not seen anything like what Golden State did in that um, late first quarter, early second quarter. Uh, the first half was loaded with runs. Uh, Boston was up 14-2. to Golden State went on a 35-8 to run, and then Boston answered that with a 7-0 run. Uh, basically, uh, this thing, uh, you know, at the end of the first quarter, Golden State was up 27-22 after being down 14 to two. They outscored uh, Golden State outscored Boston by 10 uh, in the second quarter, so they were up 15 at halftime. Boston did outscore Golden State in the third quarter uh, by five, so that cut the lead down to 10 heading into the fourth quarter, uh, and then Golden State uh, outscored. Boston in the fourth quarter by three to get a 103-90 to victory. Again, it was a 13-point victory. All six games in this series were decided by double digits, which is very interesting given the fact uh, we talked about how good these teams were defensively. Um, but Boston only scored 90 points uh, in this game. So Golden State's defense was on lockdown. Uh, that 103-90 to victory gave the Warriors um, – a NBA Finals victory, uh, winning the series in six games. So I did correctly predict uh, that Golden State would win. I said seven. They won it in six. Um, Steph, uh, Steph Curry had 34 points in game six. Just an absolute baller. Uh, Jordan Poole added 15 off the bench. On the Boston side of things, Jalen Brown had a big game with 34 points as well. Uh, Jason Tatum only had 13. Did not have a good night shooting. Uh, was only six of 18 from the field. But that victory uh, was Golden State's fourth NBA title in the last eight years, all right? That, my friends, is an official dynasty, okay? Um, they didn't win it last couple years, but they, uh, they came back with a vengeance this year. Steph Curry was your NBA Finals MVP award, which was actually his first NBA Finals MVP, which is very surprising, but then you remember that the first title of this dynasty. Andre Iguodala was the MVP. The second and third, Kevin Durant won the MVP. So those were your first three Golden State Warriors NBA Finals MVP awards. So this was Steph Curry's first NBA Finals MVP, and he actually won it with a unanimous vote. And in doing so, he became the first player in NBA history to win both a league MVP and a finals MVP, uh, both by unanimous votes. So a terrific season for uh, Steph Curry, uh, terrific season for Golden State, and uh, they got uh, some some salary cap, you know, issues, some free agent decisions to make. Um, but they have Curry, Green, Thompson. You know that core is going to be together. We'll see about Jordan Poole uh, if he gets moved. He's a great trade piece. Um, you know, if they can re-sign Andrew Wiggins, uh, he really came on late in the year, especially in the playoffs. He was a big factor. He had 18 points there in Game 6. If they can re-sign Andrew Wiggins, uh, there's no reason why the Golden State Warriors cannot be in the NBA Finals next year. Now, the Western Conference is absolutely loaded uh, because Phoenix ain't going anywhere. Memphis has proven uh, they were the two-seed this year. They, they're ready to go. Uh, Dallas has gotten significantly better with a trade that we'll talk about in Around the Island. And uh, so the West is going to be very hard. Denver's still there. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be quite the road to get back. But Golden State still has all the pieces in place uh, to make it to the finals next year, especially if they can re-sign Andrew Wiggins. And they did all of this without uh, their first-round pick, James Wiseman. 
big seven foot center, athletic uh, young kid there, uh, got hurt and missed most of the year. So they did all that without him. So uh, they get him back. Like I said, I mean, Golden State is going to be there uh, again next year. They're they're certainly going to be in the mix. But yeah, it was a you know good series. You know, Boston uh, looked like they were going to um, kind of take control of this thing, and then. Uh, just never really happened, and um, the defense for the Warriors just proved to be a little, little bit better than the Boston defense, even though Boston's was the number one defense in the regular season. So that officially wraps up the 2021-2022 NBA season. So uh, Golden State Warriors are your NBA champions, and in doing so, they have officially clinched a dynasty with their fourth uh, NBA title in the last eight seasons, which is, uh, they are the current uh, 90s Chicago Bulls. All right, this is the closest thing to the 90s version of the Michael Jordan Bulls that we will see, Um, and they look primed to uh, be back next year. So we will have to see. We have some more NBA news coming up and around the island, uh, but uh, that does conclude uh, the NBA season this year. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, do a standings update here in the MLB. Uh, most teams have played between 69 and 72 games So, uh, as it sits right now. So we're approaching the halfway point of the season. Uh, by next week's episode, it's very likely that we will be at the halfway point. Uh, all-star voting is uh, still going on, so uh, if you're into that kind of thing, be sure and vote for your favorite players to make the all-star game. But we'll start off our standings update in the National League. The NL East is still being led by the New York Mets, are at 45 and 26, four and a half game lead over the Atlanta Braves, who are 40 and 30. The Braves had a tremendous 14 game winning streak that came to an end uh, this past week. Uh, Philadelphia Phillies are third at 36 and 34. They're eight and a half games back of the Mets, a three game losing streak currently. Miami Marlins are fourth at 31 and 36. And uh, Washington Nationals have been camped out in last place in that division for much of the year, and I would fully anticipate that to continue. They're 25 and 47, uh, having only won twice in their last 10 games. Over in the National League Central, St. Louis Cardinals are up top there at 40 and 31. Uh, Their catcher, Yadier Molina, Got his 14,865th putout of his career this past week, which uh, passes Ivan Pudge Rodriguez for the most putouts by a catcher in Major League Baseball history. Certainly a Hall of Famer there. Uh, Milwaukee Brewers are just a game behind the Cardinals at 39 and 32. Pittsburgh Pirates are 28 and 40. They're third in the Central. Ten and a half games back of the Cardinals, not looking to be a factor at this particular point. Then you have the Chicago Cubs at fourth at 26 and 43. Last place in the NL Central, the Cincinnati Reds. They've been camped out there, but they have also returned to their losing ways, losing six games in a row. They're 23 and 45. Over in the National League West, The Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres are both tied for first. The Dodgers are 42-25, and uh, but they just placed outfielder Mookie Betts on the injured list this past week with a cracked rib. So that's a big blow for the Dodgers. Uh, They still uh, have won a couple games in a row, and uh, 
they're tied with the, the Padres. Uh, the Padres are 44 and 27. Um, they've played a couple more games. Uh, they've won three in a row. Padres actually had possession of solo first place in this division earlier this this week uh, for the first time in a long time. I guess it was last early last season, perhaps, maybe. Um, but uh, nonetheless, those two are tied atop the division. Third place, San Francisco Giants at 38-40. and 40. They are four and a half games back of the Dodgers and the Padres. They have claimed uh, catcher Yermin Mercedes off of waivers. Who was He was released by the Chicago White Sox. If you recall, he's a power-hitting catcher. He won AL Rookie of the Month uh, last April, I believe. Um, just came out mashing. And then he ultimately hit a slump and was just released by the White Sox. So interesting acquisition there for the Giants. Arizona Diamondbacks are 32-39. and 39. They're 12 games back uh, of the Dodgers and the Padres. And then the Colorado Rockies, they're 30-39. and 39. They are 13 games back of the Dodgers and the Padres. So that's the National League. We'll flip over real quick to the American League. American League East, the New York Yankees are 51-18. and 18. They are the first team to reach 50 wins this season, and a big reason... Uh, for that is because of their pitching. The Yankees have a team ERA of 2.74 this season, which is the third lowest ERA by an American League team 65 games into the season in the past 50 years. All right, That's kind of a mouthful there, that stat, but basically their pitching has been on another level. Starters, relievers, closers, uh, they've all been lights out. And speaking of closer, Clay Holmes his scoreless inning streak has now climbed to over 30 consecutive scoreless innings. So very impressive stuff. Uh, He has snatched that job away from Aroldis Chapman, who's still uh, injured, but uh, he ain't getting it back anytime soon. Now, the Yankees uh, had amassed 14 straight home wins over this past week and a half, couple weeks, for the first time since 1961. And this is also the first time that the New York Yankees have had multiple nine-game winning streaks in the same season since 1998. And oh, by the way, uh, they won the World Series that year. The Yankees have just been on another level. They have a 12-game lead in the American League East over the Toronto Blue Jays, who are 39-30. and 30. All right, Blue Jays are a pretty formidable team, and they have four position players that are currently leading the all-star balloting in the American League at their respective positions. So, uh, Blue Jays are coming on strong finally, uh, but they're 12 games back of the Yankees for that division. Uh, the Boston Red Sox have come to life. They've won four in a row, eight out of their last 10. They're up to third in the AL East at 39 and 31. They're 12 and a half games back of the Yankees. Tampa Bay Rays have kind of slipped a little bit. Uh, they're uh, 37 and 32. And then the Baltimore Orioles, they are 31-39. and They've been camped out there in that last place there in the AL East. But uh, Baltimore reached 30 wins this year in just their 68th game, which is quite the turnaround from what we've seen in previous years uh, in which Baltimore... uh, Let me read this stat. Here are the game numbers in which Baltimore has reached the 30-win mark over the last four seasons. 2018, they didn't get 30 wins until game 104. That is just preposterous. Uh, 2019, they got 30 wins in game 96. 
2020, uh, they didn't win 30 games, but that was the shortened COVID season, so that technically doesn't really count. And then last year in 2021, they didn't reach win number 30 until the 92nd game. And this year, they did it in 68 games. Um, pretty impressive turnaround for the Orioles, uh, but they still are, uh, are not great. Um, they're certainly not the worst team in the league, record-wise, but problem is, is they share a division with the New York Yankees. So, uh, oh yeah, and the Blue Jays and the Red Sox. So, uh, Baltimore's not sniffing the playoffs. Over in the American League Central, Cleveland Guardians are up top there, 36-28. and 28. They've been on a tear. Uh, winners of three in a row, eight out of their last ten. They have a one-game lead on the Minnesota Twins, who are at 38-32. and 32. Chicago White Sox are third in the AL Central at 33-40. and 40. I mean, 33-34, and 34, rather. They're four and a half games back of the Guardians, the White Sox are. The Detroit Tigers are 26-43. and 43. Uh, only won twice in their last 10. Kansas City Royals, they are uh, 25 and 42. All right, uh, certainly not going anywhere. Over in the American League West, the Houston Astros are 43 and 25. Um, they have a 10 game lead over my Texas Rangers. Now, I'm, I'm pretty happy that the Rangers are still in second place. Uh, however, the Rangers and the Astros played each other in a series uh, last, it was late last week after uh, we had already recorded the episode. Uh, The Astros in that, one of the games in that series, they threw two immaculate innings in that same game. Now, if you're unfamiliar with baseball, an immaculate inning is uh, a pitcher throws three straight strikeouts on nine pitches. So you basically only throw nine pitches uh, and amass nine strikes, three strikeouts. That's basically, uh, you know, a a perfect inning, immaculate inning, right? Houston had two of those in the same game. It's the first time in Major League Baseball history that's ever been done. Of course, it had to be against my Rangers. Uh, Starting pitcher Luis Garcia for Houston threw his immaculate inning in the second and uh, relief pitcher Phil Maton threw his in the seventh inning. So five innings apart. And if that stat wasn't as unbelievable enough, both the pitchers threw their immaculate innings against the same three Texas Rangers batters. Um, You can't even really make that up. Uh, That is just simply outrageous. Uh, But nonetheless, that happened. Uh, that's that's why we're talking about it, because it happened. But the Rangers are 10 games back of the Astros. Uh, the Los Angeles Angels are third in the AL West at 33-38. and 38. They're 11 and a half games back of the Astros. Now, with the Angels, outfielder Mike Trout, he's the first player in Major League Baseball history to hit four game-winning home runs in a single series. Now, in this stat, game-winning home run basically says it's a home run that put his team ahead uh, for good in that game. So he did that for, for all four games in a series. That's pretty impressive. Now, the bad news with the Angels is that they announced third baseman Anthony Rendon is going to miss the rest of the season after undergoing right wrist surgery. So it's another lost season for Rendon. He missed most of last year. He signed a hundred and something million dollar contract before last year, got hurt last year, uh, missed most of the year, and now he's done for this year. Uh, 
his career, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, he's certainly not going to be the player he was a couple years ago when he signed that massive contract, but uh, we'll have to see. Uh, the Seattle Mariners, they're fourth in the AL West. They're 31-39. and 39. They're 13 games back of the Astros. And then the Oakland A's, the poor, pitiful Oakland A's, they are officially the worst team in Major League Baseball by record, uh, giving Cincinnati a run for their money. They're 23-47. and 47. Um, Not much to talk about there with the A's. But like I said, we're uh, by next week's episode, we should be right around that halfway point of the season. So uh, we'll get you caught up, uh, maybe have an all-star uh, lineup update after the fan voting closes. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll be sure and get you caught up on that. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across all of the various sports. And uh, it's a loaded segment for you this week. Lots of news to get into. We're going to jump right in in the National Football League. Uh, big contract re-signing. Pittsburgh Steelers All-Pro Safety Minka Fitzpatrick has re-signed with the Pittsburgh Steelers on a four-year deal that's going to pay him $18.4 million per season. Uh, makes him the highest paid safety in the National Football League. And he also got $36 million guaranteed at signing. So massive payday for Minka. And, uh, I mean, he is one of the best safeties in the league. So uh, it certainly uh, is fitting. Philadelphia Eagles signed a safety of their own. Uh, Former 49ers safety Jaquiski Tart signed a one-year deal with the Eagles. And uh, some other news on the Eagles. Uh, This last week, I guess it was, they uh, came out and announced that they tweaked the uh, word mark for their logo, um, going with a more modern look. Now, it's not the Eagle Head logo that you typically see when you look at the Philadelphia Eagles logo. It's the word Eagles. That's basically their secondary logo spelled out. Uh, The old one was definitely older looking. The new one is certainly more modern looking, so they certainly accomplished their goal there to make it more modern. Uh, If you want to see it, you can Google it, but uh, it's pretty cool looking. Uh, But I still hate the Philadelphia Eagles with a passion, being a Dallas Cowboys fan, so I don't really care to talk about the Eagles anymore. So uh, we did have a retirement this past week. Tight end Rob Gronkowski has officially announced his retirement from the NFL. And much like Tom Brady, I think we've seen this before. Um, Now, Tom Brady did come back this year, uh, but Gronk has decided to hang them up. He finished with some, if this truly is the end of his career, uh, he's a four-time Super Bowl champ, four-time All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowler, finished with 621 catches for 9,286 yards, and a whopping 92 touchdowns in his career. Uh, Certainly going to be headed to Canton in the Hall of Fame uh, whenever he is eligible. Last week, or maybe two episodes ago, we talked about quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick retiring from the NFL. Well, this past week it was announced that uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick will be joining Amazon. Uh, Amazon is the the home of Thursday Night Football this upcoming season. Fitzpatrick's going to be in the broadcast booth for the NFL's pregame, halftime, and postgame coverage for all Thursday night football games. And in doing so, he is going to join Tony Gonzalez and Richard Sherman. All right, so they have uh, three longtime solid NFL all pros 
well, Fitzpatrick wasn't that, but he, you know, long time in the league. Um, certainly some recognizable faces there in the broadcast booth to go with Kirk Herbstreet and Al Michaels calling the game. So Amazon's definitely getting their stuff together for this upcoming season. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch those guys be in the broadcast booth. Moving over to the National Hockey League, we have several teams that have found their new head coach. Right? We've talked about all the firings that have taken place uh, over the last uh, three or four episodes, but uh, some some teams have found their new head coaches. The Philadelphia Flyers were the first to announce theirs. They hired John Tortorella as their new head coach. Tortorella signed a four-year contract with the Flyers to be their head coach, and he's been a, long, a head coach for a very long time. Uh, most recently coached the Columbus Blue Jackets for six years, going 227, 166, and 54 before getting fired after the 2020-2021 season. Uh, Tortorella did not coach this past year. So he's an in-your-face, loud, obnoxious kind of dude, and uh, I guess that's the direction that Philly wanted to go. Uh, Second team to announce a head coaching hiring was my Dallas Stars. They have hired Pete DeBoer as their new head coach. Uh, Pete DeBoer recently got fired by the Vegas Golden Knights after falling just short of the playoffs this year for the first time in their franchise history. But uh, DeBoer is a proven coach, He has taken three different teams to the Stanley Cup playoffs. He's coached for 14 seasons, and in that time frame that he's coached, he's sixth uh, in coaching wins. I said those three playoff trips with three different teams, uh, he's appeared in two Stanley Cup finals, All right, most recently with the Vegas Golden Knights, I believe. So uh, certainly a capable coach. He's ready for a fresh start, and – Stars are a great team to, to get a hold of. A lot of good young players to uh, to build on. Uh, another team to announce a head coaching hire. Fresh off their president trophy winning season as the best regular season team, the Florida Panthers. They have hired Paul Maurice to be their new head coach. Now, Maurice is going to replace interim head coach Andrew Brunette, who took over for Joel Quenville pretty quickly into the season uh, after Quinville had some off-ice stuff surface. Uh, Andrew Brunette did a fantastic job. And honestly, this was probably the the head coaching hire that I was most surprised at, um, given how well Brunette did uh, leading them to the President's Trophy. Now, I'm sure the second-round sweep in the playoffs, uh, courtesy of the Tampa Bay Lightning, probably did not help uh, that decision. But Uh, Who knows? Uh, Paul Maurice is coached in the NHL over 1,700 games. He's seventh uh, all-time in coaching wins with 775. He just most recently coached the Winnipeg Jets for nine years, and he had to step down, or he didn't have to. He chose to step down just 29 games into this past season. So uh, certainly a capable coach there. Interesting to see how he'll do with a very good team. And then the Edmonton Oilers didn't hire a new coach, but uh, they fired Dave Tippett uh, just shy of halfway through the year this year, uh, and they had promoted assistant coach Jay Woodcroft to the head coaching spot interim tag. Uh, Well, they signed Jay Woodcroft to a three-year contract to be their head coach. All right. Um, Woodcroft obviously led the Oilers to the Western Conference Final, so it was a Pretty successful season, as as you would call it. They 
fell short of their their goal, obviously, but uh, still a successful year for Edmonton. Uh, one trade to report in the NHL: Montreal Canadiens have traded Shea Weber, or at least his contract, to the Vegas Golden Knights in exchange for forward Evgeny Dadanov. Uh, this was a huge contract dump for Montreal. Uh, Weber did not play this past year due to injury, and with his age, uh, he is likely going to be retiring. I don't anticipate him playing, but uh, Montreal gets Evgeny Dadanoff from Vegas in a contract dump. So, um, you know, we'll see on that. That's just kind of a weird random trade. It's basically a contract for a player. Uh, Washington Capitals forward Nicholas Backstrom. This is important news. He underwent left hip resurfacing surgery. I don't know what that is, but sounds very painful. Uh, he's going to be out for the foreseeable future. They did not release a timetable for his return, but uh, you got to think that's at least six-month recovery, uh, especially for a, a hockey player. Uh, your hips are relatively important. So uh, you got to figure that's going to keep him out at least six months. And if that, if six months is the number, uh, that's going to put him back around December, you know, and uh, that's certainly, that's by that point, you're mid-season almost. So I uh, wouldn't expect to see Backstrom, uh, Backstrom in a Capitals uniform for the foreseeable future. Um, NHL also, big, this is kind of, important news. NHL announced that they're raising the salary cap for the 2022-2023 season. Uh, salary cap is now going to sit at $82.5 million, which is just over a million dollar increase from this past year. It's only notable because this is the first time in the last three years that the salary cap has increased. All right, In addition to the salary cap being increased, the salary cap floor was also increased to $61 million. So this was all per the NHL's new collective bargaining agreement, which, of course, the NHL's seen a big revenue increase from the uh, past couple years of the COVID stuff. They jumped over to ESPN, had a lot of nationally televised games on ESPN, so that drew a lot of uh, a lot of fan viewership, which raised revenue. So uh, that's good for the NHL. Um, the NHL awards were handed out the other night. I kind of alluded to these earlier in the NHL segment. But uh, we'll just go over some of the notable awards that were handed out. Uh, the Hart Trophy, which was the league MVP, that was won by Austin Matthews of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's only the second American player ever to win the league MVP award. Uh, terrific season. He cleaned up. You'll, you'll see here in a minute. Uh, Norris Trophy for the top defenseman, Kale McCarr, Colorado Avalanche. Certainly think he's deserving of that. Um, he is probably the best defenseman in the game. Uh, I mean, he's got a trophy to say that he is, but uh, the eye test would tell you that he is as well. The Vesna Trophy for the top goalie, Igor Shosturkin of the New York Rangers. Uh, terrific regular season, kind of struggled in the first round of the playoffs, but picked it up, uh, really kind of kept the Rangers in it throughout the playoffs. Your Calder Trophy for the top rookie was Moritz Sider of the Detroit Red Wings, defenseman. Ted Lindsay Award, which was the most outstanding player. Austin Matthews. Your Art Ross Trophy, which is the most points in the regular season. That was Connor McDavid. Had just a asinine 120, I think maybe 123 points this year. Uh, just ridiculous. The kid is phenomenal. 
Rocket Richard Trophy for the most goals in the regular season. That, too, was won by Austin Matthews. So um, Matthews cleaned house there in the awards. And then the Jack Adams Award for the top coach is Daryl Sutter of the Calgary Flames. Certainly deserving of that. Calgary had a fantastic year and uh, ended up beating my Dallas Stars in the first round of the playoffs. Move over to the NBA. A couple of trades to go over here in the NBA. The first one and the biggest one, the Houston Rockets. They traded uh, their center, Christian Wood, to the Dallas Mavericks. My Mavericks making a move already. I love it. Uh, Now, Dallas did give up their first-round pick in this year's draft, which was number 26 overall. Trey Burke, Marquise Chris, and Boban Marjanovic. All right, a lot of fans were sad to see Boban go, but he uh, he was a great dude, good good community person, but he was pretty much a pylon out there. So uh, in Christian Wood, uh, it's a true big man for the Mavs that they so desperately needed in the playoffs. Uh, Wood can score, and he's a pretty decent underrated rebounder. That's not something that you would highlight in his game, but he averaged 18 points and 10 rebounds a game this past year uh, for Houston on a terrible team. So uh, it'll be exciting to see what he can do alongside Luka Doncic. And uh, that trade, I think, is going to... I don't think the Mavericks are quite done yet, but... Um, Putting Christian Wood in that lineup uh, is going to be really good for the Mavericks. The other notable trade to take place is the Detroit Pistons. They traded Jeremy Grant to the Portland Trailblazers for a 2025 protected first-round pick. Now, the Trailblazers have been pursuing Grant for over a year. Uh, He's a great scorer. They want to pair him with Damian Lillard. Portland's also absorbing all $21 million of Grant's contract, so... Um, you know, pretty pretty big trade there. The first round pick that Detroit gave up in 2025 actually came to them via the Milwaukee Bucks, and it's protected one through four, which means that uh, if that pick somehow ends up being a top four pick, then it would get bumped uh, to a lower draft pick. Um, there were also a couple other second round picks in this year's draft that were swapped but that's really not as relevant as the uh, the player for the first-round pick. Um, other NBA news. Last week I talked about Golden State Warriors assistant coach Kenny Atkinson accepting the Charlotte Hornets coaching job. Uh, well, after Golden State won the championship this past week, Kenny Atkinson came out and said, nope, no thanks, uh, not doing that. I'm going to stay with Golden State. So he... Uh, Turned down the Charlotte Hornets coaching job, and he is staying as Golden State's top assistant coach with uh, Mike Brown still leaving for Sacramento. This leaves the Hornets without a head coach and uh, sends them back to the drawing board on who they will hire as their new head coach. Uh, next week in the NBA uh, Around the Island segment, we'll, uh, we'll have an NBA draft recap. All right, The NBA draft is this Thursday, June 23rd, and so... We'll, uh, we'll have a recap of at least the top few picks in that draft and see how that went. Um, but we'll close around the island with some golf news. It's kind of a hybrid PGA Tour news slash LIV golf invitational series news. Uh, four-time major championship winner Brooks Kepka has announced that he too is leaving the PGA Tour and joining the LIV golf series. 
Uh, Abraham Answer came out and said that as well. Now, this is very interesting because Brooks Kepka and his uh, press conference at the U.S. Open before that got started, pretty uh, pretty outspoken against LIV, but uh, money talks, and uh, apparently these millionaires aren't millionaire enough because they're jumping to go play in uh, the LIV Golf Series, which is not anywhere near as prestigious as, of course, the PGA Tour. Uh, they only play 54 holes in the LIV golf tournament. So um, interesting to see all these guys jump and ship. Now, this is just getting outrageous uh, at this point. PGA Tour has come out and uh, said that in response to all these high-profile departures that they've seen, um, they're going to begin holding eight no-cut special event tournaments with $20 million purses for the top 50 in the FedEx Cup standings. And this is going to begin in the 2023 season. So uh, interesting to keep an eye on that. Not sure where they're going to drum up all this extra money unless they've been sitting on it this whole time. But uh, that is the PGA Tour's attempt to try and get lure these guys back over to the Tour. So um, some other golf news. If you've watched golf uh, anytime recently, uh, you've seen the CBS broadcasts over the weekend. Um, you might know who Sir Nick Faldo is. He's been the lead golf analyst at CBS for the last 16 years. Well, he announced that he is retiring after 16 years. Um, and CBS announced that Trevor Immelman, he is going to be their new lead golf analyst. Uh, Immelman becomes just the fourth lead golf analyst for CBS in the past 50 years following uh, Nick Faldo's departure. Now, Immelman was on the PGA Tour for quite a while. He won the 2008 Masters, and he's actually going to be the captain of the international team for this fall's President's Cup. So uh, he certainly has the golf pedigree to be the lead analyst. Uh, he's been on the CBS broadcast for a while, kind of in a uh, secondary role, but he will take over lead analyst duties. Now, Nick Faldo's last broadcast is going to be the final round of the Wyndham Championship on August the 7th. So he still has uh, about a month and a half left in the broadcast booth, but uh, I do enjoy listening to uh, Nick Faldo. Very wise when it comes to golf. Uh, he, too, has won a Masters in his golfing career. So um, just interesting news there out of the golf world. But that's going to wrap up the 80th uh, version of the Sports Island podcast. Um this next upcoming week, we got lots of uh, lots of stuff to get into as well. We'll we'll have a Stanley Cup champion that's going to be crowned on next week's episode. We'll have a good solid golf tournament to recap in the Travelers Championship, and uh, baseball is approaching the halfway point of their season. So, uh, and I mentioned we'll uh, we'll have an NBA draft to recap as well next week. So, uh, be sure uh, tune in to some some high profile sporting events this weekend. Uh, you know I will be. We'll get you caught up next week. And, uh, yeah, so another another good weekend of sports. And, like I said, we'll, we'll uh, get you caught up again next week. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.